Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And John, I'm here to weave you a tale. (laughs) Is that what we do on this podcast? Yeah. You see, the ancient scrolls tell a tale of a time when we used to choose different sagas to talk about. Mm -hmm. First summarizing them before subjecting them to a, a series of judgments at what we liked to call the saga thing. Yes, yes, I've heard the stories of the old ones. But that was in the before times, John. Uh-huh. Before we began the reading of Ale Saga, mm-hmm. the task passed down to us by our four selves. Sorry. I'm sorry, our four selves? <laughs> yeah, yeah, those guys. They were thinner and more optimistic, remember them? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I hate those guys. Uh, Andy, I also bring a tale. A tale within a tale. So we have a shocking twist here. That's exciting. Not really. There's just a little bit more on the back of the ancient scrolls. If you have to oh, look, <laughs> on, look on both sides. Uh, the back foretells that after a year of wandering, the saga of Ale will come to an end. Ooh. And the bearded hosts of this podcast will return to their mission of reviewing the sagas of Icelanders. Are, are you saying? I mean, is this it? Is this the end of our quest? I mean, I'm no ancient soothsayer, but <laughs> yes, this this is the last episode dedicated to discussing Ale's Saga. Well then, let the party begin. Except for the Judgments episode, which will be coming out in a couple of weeks. <laughs> a couple of weeks, sure. Uh, let's see, you raised everyone's hope and then poof, destroyed them with great skill. Well done. That's John. what we do here. But we do it with such style. <laughs> yes, we do. Now, speaking of upcoming episodes, we've got a fun one for those of you who couldn't make it to our live show at the Scandinavian Cultural Center in East Newton, Mass. Yes, uh, it's a special episode where we revisit the Vinland sagas and then look into the efforts of some 19th century men of means to locate Vinland in the greater Boston area, conveniently yeah. close to their homes. <laughs> Very conveniently close to their economic interests as well. Sure. No, it was a lot of fun. And uh, thanks to Bridgewater State University's English department for funding the trip and hosting me. Yes. And to the Scandinavian Cultural Center for putting on a great event. We had a wonderful time. And thanks to you listeners who were able to come out and see us. It was a great pleasure to meet you in person. Mm-hmm. Yes, we uh, we couldn't have been happier with the experience, actually. Uh, and we'd love to do more live shows in the future. Absolutely. And in fact, while it won't be a live show exactly, we'll be on a panel on podcasting hosted by Medievalist.net at the International Congress on Medieval Studies at Western Michigan University in May, uh, along with a number of hosts that our listeners will probably know. Yeah, that's right. Almost everyone you know and love will be there. Nope. <laughs> yes. Like the famous John and Andy from Saga Thing. <laughs> yes. Uh, but also Noah Tetzner from the History of Vikings podcast, Patrick Lane from Medieval Death Trip, and Danielle Sibulski from the Medieval podcast, and Sarah If Decker from Media Evil podcast. So it's yeah, a that's, stacked it, lineup. I mean, it should be a great panel. Um, yeah. If you all want to join us, all you need to do is register for the Medieval Congress at wmich.edu slash Medieval Congress. Uh, and fair warning to everyone, it's an academic conference, which means it's expensive, uh, uncomfortable <laughs> at times. Uh, but if you like medieval literature, history, art, and archaeology, well, it's a banging good time. Three days of peace and love. Come on down. <laughs> Make it a party. All right, John. So what are we uh, What are we doing tonight? Uh, something about finishing Ale Saga. Uh, should we still do that? You interested? Well, I, I want nothing more than to finish this saga, to be honest with you. Well... Good news, we've only got a few chapters to cover, so but on the other hand, they are loaded. So if you're yeah. serious about finishing Ale Saga tonight, we should uh we should get busy. 
Okay. Are, you, are you ready for the recap of our last episode? Oh, I was born ready, uh, but I've, I've been slowly losing my readiness ever since. <laughs> like a balloon full of hot air and saga analysis. How sad. <laughs> and redundant. <laughs> well, uh, then let's not waste any more time gassing on. All right, then. Here's what happened. Last time on Ale Saga. Ale and Thorstein don't see eye to eye on a lot of things, and not only because Thorstein is a smaller man than his hulking father. But Thorstein, a handsome and popular man, proves an able man at the business of running things at Borgafjord. It isn't long before Thorstein squabbles with a neighbor, Stenar, the son of Ale's old friend, Onan Sione. It seems Stenar has decided the grass is always greener on Thorstein's side of the valley, so he takes it. He lets his sheep loose to graze on the verdant largesse of Thorstein's lawn. Words are exchanged. It isn't long before Thorstein has killed not one, but two of Stenar's shepherds. Stenar retaliates with a lawsuit that could see Thorstein outlawed from Iceland forever. And he's got big names to back his move, including the powerful and amoral chieftain Tungu Ard. But Ale isn't about to twiddle his thumbs while his family is threatened, even if it is his least favorite child in the crosshairs. Ale makes the scene at the lawsuit with 80 men dressed for war, and soon convinces Stenar's father Onund to grant him the right to judge the case for old time's sake. Oh, Nelly, is that a blooper? <laughs> Ale unsurprisingly rules in his son's favor, and forces Stenar to vacate his farm and beat feet out of the area. Stenar and Thorsten continue to antagonize each other from afar, but eventually their feud peters out with both men left alive. And Ale settles into his retirement, finally secure that his surviving children are well positioned in their lives. And that really was Ale's swan song as an active man in Iceland. Yeah, but what a way to take a final bow. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that ride into the all thing with 80 armed men at his heels, that was a hell of a show. Well, as we've said, Ale is a bit of a dandy. Mm -hmm. And that means... He knows how to make an entrance. So, But now we're coming to the end of Ale's life, and that sort of showmanship becomes impossible for him as he ages, because Ale's story ends much differently from most saga protagonists. Or is that because it's because he lives to be old, right? I mean, well, kind of. Well, because a lot of people that we read about on this podcast don't live to be old. Sure. Uh, but we've had other saga figures live into old age. Uh, but when that happens, the narrative usually just kind of yada yadas it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Thorbjorn lived in the district until he was a very great age, or something along those lines. Yeah, uh, Ale is unusual because the narrative follows him into old age. Right? We're going to experience his physical decline, and more importantly, we're going to hear what he thinks of it. Which makes sense. I mean, quite a bit of this saga is written as a way to incorporate poems attributed to Ale Scott Grimson about how he feels about yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. No, especially I'd say, especially in the later sections where this saga presents most of Ale's more famous poetry. Yeah. So if there are poems around claiming to be Ailes and talking about being an old man, well, that's going to pull the saga into extending Ailes' story to include them. Right. No, exactly. It's a, I think it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem, though, since we aren't always sure which verses predate the saga's composition and by how long. Uh, but yeah, the upshot is that this saga feels compelled not only to acknowledge Ailes' long life, but to extend the story to make old age part of Ailes' narrative. Hmm. You know, there's also an implied boast in that. I mean, Ailes mm -hmm. lived a long life, 80 years or more. It's very yeah. impressive. And there were a lot of people along the way who didn't want him to, right? 
<laughs> well, and most of those people are long dead by this point in the narrative. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I, if, if there's a victory in Ill's long life, it's uh, it's definitely hard-earned. Yeah. It's almost Pyrrhic. Almost, yeah. Because uh, old age isn't especially kind to Ale. I feel like that's really all the introduction this episode needs. So why don't we just dive in now? I mean, sure. We've been waiting for this for a year. Let's be hasty, Master Mariadoc. Part 51. The time seems long in passing. Now that I think about it, you're really more of a Pippin Took. Oh, I see you've you've thought about yep. this. I, I I'm curious as to why you think so, but I'm gonna move. I mean, us it's along kind of here. a Lord of the Rings sorting hat kind of thing. Which Hobbit are you? <laughs> but I, what I'm curious about is what makes me a Pippin. I think we should ask literally anyone who knows you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So after a long, long journey. We are finally here in the final chapters of Ale Saga. And Ale is unpredictable to the last, because as we said, after a lifetime of taunting kings, dueling berserks, and dangerous voyages, Ale is dying slowly of old age at home. The beginning of chapter 88 tells us, Ale Scott Grimson lived a long life, but in his old age he grew very frail, and both his hearing and sight failed, and he also suffered from very stiff legs. See, we don't often get to see our saga figures age this no. way. And usually when we see a figure reach old age, he's still strong, still alert, or at least mentally sharp, like someone someone like Njal. Right, or Ofig, the trickster from Bandamana Saga. Bandamana Saga. Uh, Ofig sometimes presented as old and unsteady, but the text makes it very clear that that's a posture on his part. Ofig mm-hmm. is only doddering when it suits his purposes to be so. Yeah. And Ale is actually in a decline. Yeah. He's suffering the effects of aging in a body that's breaking down in a very realistic yeah, terms. Hang on, I, I want to get into that, but we should let Ale tell that story himself. Mm-hmm. So Ale has moved in with his stepdaughter Thordis and her husband Grim, and he's seriously impaired by age and by chronic disease. And one day he loses his balance and falls, and some old women laugh at him. Uh, one of them calls out, You're certainly finished, Ale, now that you topple over by yourself. Yeah, there's that old chestnut that men fear being laughed at mm-hmm. by women, especially saga-age men. Right. Um, and this is clearly a moment when we're meant to feel Ale's humiliation. Yeah. His son-in-law, Grimm, tries to console Ale by including himself in the insult, saying, Women made fun of us less when we were younger. Right, and Ale, unsurprisingly, responds with a verse. My head bobs like a bridle horse. It plunges baldly into woe. My middle leg both droops and drips while both my ears are dry. <laughs> now, we should be clear that there's been a lot of interpretation of those right, lines. Sometimes his ears are wet. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, Scudder's translation uh, goes enthusiastically for an interpretation that Ailes talking mm-hmm. about impotence and incontinence among his infirmities. Uh, but others have translated those lines to mean that Ale is sort of wryly commenting on his weakness, and specifically his weak legs. Uh, W.C. Green's translation is, Old haltered horse I waver, bald head I weakly fall, hollow are my failing leg bones, and the fount of hearings dry. Yeah, so the original is a bit obscure, but 
when isn't this type of poetry a little obscure? Yeah, no, that's fair. Uh, the original is Blauter erum berges uh, which can be literally translated as soft are my stony legs or else my hard leg is squishy. <laughs> See, you can, it's very much open to both readings. Yep. <laughs> but that's often deliberate with these poems anyway. Uh, and both are reasonable complaints for an old man whose body is increasingly decrepit. Sure. Now, I tend to think Scudder's reaching a little bit with his interpretation, but it's not outlandish. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the point is that Ale is suffering from his increasing disability due to advanced age and also possibly due to a chronic condition. And that decline becomes more and more limiting. Ale loses his sight completely and is limited to moving back and forth from his bed to the fire to try to keep warm. You know, my dad's getting older now and he's always cold. And I remember that with my grandmother. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I think if your father listens to this podcast, he's going to really enjoy being compared to a senescent Ale Scott Grimson. Well, first of all, being <laughs> compared to a senescent Ale Scott Grimson is a compliment. I suppose. Second of all, he, he doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> He's got better things to do. Sure. Sitting by the cooking fire and trying to keep his legs warm. That's right. Yes. Now, this doesn't bode well for my father, but Ail's decline becomes more and more limiting over time. And he eventually loses his sight completely, and he's limited to moving back and forth from his bed to the fire to try and keep warm. And a woman cooking at the fire grumbles that he's always under her feet and tells him to go to bed. Which is something my mom does to my dad, actually. And, <laughs> and there's another slightly kinder person uh, who has to warn Ale not to stretch his legs out too close to the fire since he can't see the danger and he lacks feeling in his legs. Right. And the overall feeling of these final chapters is Ale's world kind of closing down. He's reduced to a smaller and smaller amount of independent action. His senses are failing. His final verses are a lament about his impairments. Blind I wandered to sit by the fire, asked the flame maiden for peace. Such affliction I bear on the low-hanging border, the place where my eyebrows are creased. A land-rich king once took joy in my words, he gave me a giant's hoard gold. Time now seems long as I lie alone, a man in his bed growing old. My legs are two widows, frigid and lame. Those withered old women are hungry for flame. So you uh, you decided just to go full Tom Waits on that one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to the degree that I have an image of Ale in my head, he looks like a, an uglier Ron Perlman and sounds like a slightly hungover Tom Waits. What I mean, uh, doesn't Tom Waits sound like a hungover Tom Waits usually? <laughs> Isn't that kind of the whole shtick? Well. Yeah. But you know, if I'm being honest, I don't know that your ale sounds anything like the real Tom Waits. I, I don't know what you've been doing. It's wonderful, but I don't know that it's Tom Waits. Well, I'm not a very Tom, good impressionist. I'm uh, honored to be honored. Yeah. Tom Waits <laughs> kind of sounds like Heath Ledger's Joker, or I guess that version mm. of the Joker could be based on Tom Waits. Either way, that's that's more like what Tom Waits sounds like. Not this gravelly Montana fellow you've, you've created. I think uh, you and I have listened to different Tom Waits albums. I'm close to heaven. <laughs> Maybe we have. I, but all right. All right. Uh, the point is that Ale's final poems are about the experience of aging and suffering in a decaying body. Mm-hmm. I want to circle back to that issue when we get to the end. 
both a threat and a promise. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so Ale is still described as active apart from his blindness. He relies on Grimm and Thordis and their servants to help him get around, but he still has an interest in the things going on. Right, but we should be clear about the nature of that interest. Okay, see, I was I was teeing you up, but fine. Uh, <laughs> one summer, Ale asks Grimm to arrange the needed help for Ale to get to the All Thing. Grimm, quite reasonably, has some hesitation about this. He he generally tries to be accommodating, but this this is a bit much. Mm-hmm. So instead of refusing outright, he asks Thordis to find out why Ale wants to travel all that way in his condition. And when she asks him, he says, "Well, well, John, you should do Ale's line. It's a, it's a good <laughs> one. <laughs> should make me do this voice as much as possible before the end, yes. aren't you? Yes. <clears throat> sure. Well." I'll tell you what I've been thinking. I want to go to the thing with the two chests full of English silver that King Athelstan once gave me. I'm going to have the chests carried to Law Rock when the crowd is at its biggest. Then I'll toss the silver to the crowd, and I'll be surprised if they decide to share it out fairly amongst them. I expect there'll be plenty of pushing and shoving, and it might end with the entire thing breaking out in a brawl. <laughs> so you can just imagine the evil grin on Ale's face. <laughs> He's still got that mischievous streak in he him. He sure does. But but this is just, I mean, this is breathtaking cynicism. Ale's lifelong misanthropy is, is really well, coming well, to the He's floor. not wrong, though. No, that, that's why it's so darkly charming that he wants to do it. This is a masterpiece of misanthropy. Mm-hmm. He's not going to make anyone do anything. He's giving them wealth. It's just human nature that's going to destroy the all thing. And Grimm and Thordis know this. Yes. And when she tells Grimm what Ale's planning, Grimm is horrified. <laughs> he must never be allowed to get away with such a mad scheme. Right. Okay, but note that he's not saying it'll never work. No, no. <laughs> it will work. Our author might be as big a cynic as Ale. Oh, you think? Yeah, on top of everything else, the silver that Ale wants to throw away is Athelstan's silver, the compensation mm-hmm. paid for Ale's brother Thorolf decades ago. Ale's held on to it his entire life, and rather than give it to his surviving son Thorstein, he wants to throw it away to create a moment of anarchy at the All Thing. Now, I'm glad you phrased it like that because I think that brings up another layer to this idea. We've been playing all along with the idea that Snorri Sturluson is the author of this saga. Well, more likely than not, I think, is the phrase we've been using. Yes, more likely than not. Now, we know that Snorri was waist-deep in the intrigues of the Norwegian and Icelandic world. And he certainly knew that Norwegian money was finding its way into the power struggles of Iceland. Mm -hmm. And now here we are at the end of this saga, and Eil's plan is to use a king's wealth to sow discord and destroy the peace of the all thing. Yeah, that's right. It's certainly in keeping with Ale's character to do something like this, because Ale can't stand hypocrisy and petty posturing. And I think it's fair to say that Snorri must have felt something similar at some point in his life, whether that's the politically ambitious younger Snorri, who sought to leverage his relationship with King Haakon of Norway against his rivals in Iceland, or if it's the older Snorri who had turned against the king and became disillusioned with the posturing that no doubt occurred at the All Thing. But Snorri seems like a guy who didn't mind a bit of posturing himself. Well, as long as he was the one doing the posturing. Which is also very much like Ale. Snorri is also an opportunistic and power-hungry egomaniac who fought to consolidate power into his own hands. (laughs) So who is he to cast stones, John? Well, the author. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) 
Historically, though, it was the Storgolar and the wealthy ruling families like Snorri's that hollowed out the Icelandic system of government in the 12th and 13th centuries. And again, no family was more guilty of that destruction than Snorri's Sturlung clan. Oh, absolutely. But but it's I think it's very, very easy to pretend that a corrupting Norwegian influence in those late years was to blame, especially if you're the one writing the narrative and the other choice is to blame yourself. Yes, yes. I mean, it's one more level of cynicism from this narrative. Well, he's blaming human nature, I think, in this right. case, more than he's right. blaming uh, a Norwegian king or, or mm-hmm. any other th- king. It's the money that people are lusting after that's corrupting the society. Right. And as we said, right, it's not ale's not going to do anything. People are going to do it all People, by themselves. Yeah, they got it under control. So this great Icelandic experiment is is failing in ale's mm-hmm. eyes at this point. Um, there's also the potential once again for a literary connection to Snorri's other works. Mm-hmm. Alison Finley has pointed out a similarity between ale's plan to disrupt the all thing and one of the stories of Odin in Snorri's Skaldskaparmal. Oh, is this the, this is in the uh, Elegy in Old Age essay. Uh-huh, yeah. So in this story, Odin is traveling in disguise in Midgard. And that's the world of men. Um, he meets nine thralls and shows them the power of a whetstone that he carries, which makes their scythes super sharp. The thralls all want to buy the whetstone, and they're so determined to have it that when Odin throws it up into the air, they spin around carelessly to catch it, and they all cut each other's throats with their newly sharpened sides. I mean, that does sound like the kind of thing Ale would do. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. It, it's a little tenuous as a parallel to Ale flinging silver off Lawrock, but you can see how it connects. Right. And that story, of course, is part of a longer myth about how Odin recovered the meat of poetry. Yes. And we've already seen several other instances in Ale's later life where that legend just keeps cropping up. Mm-hmm. I think there's a pretty clear theme being developed across the second half of this saga that Ale's status as a poet and the echoes of the meat of poetry story go hand in hand. So I'm 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 going to buy it on credit. How's that? I like it. I like it. So to finish this up, Grimm doesn't want to be a party to the complete decimation of social political norms in Iceland. So he refuses to bring <sighs> Ale along to the all thing, which I think is Spoiler a very sport. boring decision. <laughs> and Thordis goes and stays in the Sheeling, which is a cattle herd shed, uh, while the All Thing's going on. Right. Well, she doesn't want to be in the house with Ale while he stews over being left behind. Probably. And can you really blame her? He's not. Oh, no, no. That seems like a smart move. Yeah. But it does mean that Ale is free to act out with whatever bit of petty misbehavior he can pull off. Mm-hmm. And he's got something in mind, which uh, he learned from his old man. From Scott the Grim. Yeah. Yeah, he's going to hide the silver, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Uh, back in, I think, like part 30 or so of this saga, uh, we told the story of Scott Legrim's death. Part 30. And right before he died, Scott Legrim rode off into the marshes of Krumskelda with two loads of silver, which he hid somewhere out in the swamps. Mm-hmm. Now, he did that to keep Ale from getting the money, since they'd just argued about the compensation silver from Athelstan and were busy being spiteful to each other. Scott Legrim died later the same day that he'd hid the silver. Now, we said at the time that we'd be seeing an echo of Scott Legrim's silver at the end of the saga. So here we are. Right. Ale's out to prove that the vindictive acorn didn't fall far from the splenetic tree. Uh-huh. The splenetic. Really? Yeah, I stand, I stand by that, yes. Uh-huh. So <laughs> Ale has a problem that Scott Legrim didn't have, though. You see, Ale's blind. Yeah. So 
he needs to recruit a pair of Grimm's servants to help lead him into the wilderness to bury this silver. Yeah, he uh, he claims that he wants to go for a soak in a hot spring. Yeah, but the fact that he's bringing these big chests of silver is kind of a giveaway. Well, unless he can convince the servants that silver needs the occasional dip in a hot spring as well. <laughs> I don't think so. That's not how silver works. No, I mean, actually, just the opposite. Uh, the the high sulfur content of a volcanic hot spring would probably tarnish the hell out of silver. Yeah, of course. It, it's not the servant's business if the geriatric Viking pensioner in the longhouse wants to uh, take <laughs> his silver for a ride, maybe dip it uh, in the uh, in the sulfur. Uh, but, sure. <laughs> so they go. Ale loads up the two chests on a horse, and he and the servants ride off. And they're gone for a day and a night, and... I, you know, I imagine the I imagine the servants are very excited about this opportunity to get out of the house and spend <laughs> some quality time with Ale. Sure. So the next morning, people from the farm see Ale wandering around on the hills east of the farm, leading his horse. And so they collect him and bring him home. But there's no sign of those little chests and no sign of the servants either. They're never seen again. Yeah. I, I, you know... Every time I think about this scene, I, I love the idea of it. Just Ale's commitment to his spitefulness. Yes. yes. That that he's he's off. I mean, he doesn't have any idea how to get home by himself. No. Right. Well, but he could have committing this final deed was important enough to him that he's willing to just kind of potentially just die in the elements yeah. in order to have accomplished this. But it really is. It's just unpleasant. Yeah. And, and it's unpleasant because of the servants, right? Yeah, because the servants. Uh, it's maybe a useful reminder that there's misanthropy and there's homicidal disregard for other people's lives. Absolutely. And Ale isn't always on the right side of that fairly significant divider. Which is going to be interesting when we get to Thingman and Outlawry. Sure. Yes. You know, he's he's not he's not a great guy. Oh. <laughs> he's, I, I think there's no question but that Ale is going to grace somebody's table. He's got fine qualities, but he's a problematic individual. Look, you need a court poet, don't you? <laughs> now, it's also a pretty clear indicator of the preoccupations of sagas in general, though. Uh, there's a level of society that most sagas concern themselves with, and servants, they, they really aren't a part of that. Look at Thrond in Thorstein's story earlier. We're never really invited to care about what happened to him. Yeah, I know it's a standard, but sometimes the starkness of that indifference needs to be mentioned. Oh, yeah. Only so that people know that we haven't been totally desensitized to it. That's fair. No. Well, if you're done being sensitive, though, I can explain that oh. Ale Silver is... Well, back when Scott Ligrim died, didn't you say something about his hidden silver still being a goal of modern treasure hunters? Yeah, I think we may have done a Legend of Curly's Gold or Maltese Falcon <laughs> joke or something. It's it's best not to remember these things too closely. Yeah. Well, dust off those Curly's Gold jokes, John, because according oh. to our saga author, people in the Middle Ages were still actively looking for Ale's two chests of silver. Oh, yeah. Uh, can you read that part? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it says, there are many theories about where Ale hid his treasure. East of the farm is a gully leading down from the mountain. And English coins have been found in that gully when the river recedes after floods. But then there are large and exceptionally deep marshes below the hayfields at Mossfell, and it's claimed that Ale threw his treasure into them. But also, on the south side of the river, there are hot springs with big pits nearby, where some say Ale must have hidden his chests. Will-o'-the-wisps are often seen there. All right, so essentially... If I can find a medium to large local geographic feature within, say, a day's ride of Mossville, 
it's a good bet somebody's already gone ahead and looked for Ailes treasure either on, under, or behind it. Yeah, well, this explains why Jesse Byock has been spending so much time at Mossville, right? <laughs> I thought he was just he's going to strike it rich. Yeah, I thought he was interested in just, you know, archaeological curiosity. But here he's treasure hunting. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and I should point out, no one's uh, no one's looking for the servants. Right, right. And and unlike our author, Olaf and Thordis don't even seem that interested in what happened to the treasure. I mean, or the servants for that matter. It's a bit of a parallel to Ale killing his father's foreman at the dinner table when he was a kid. There's just a certain amount of collateral damage attached to having ale in your home. you got to be ready for it. Sure. Yeah. Wear and tear on the weapons, breakage of servants, cleaning bill for vomit stains in the longhouse. <laughs> it, it all adds up. Yeah, it adds up. Exactly. Price to be paid for knowing a guy like ale. Mm-hmm. But uh, we won't know him for much longer because later that same year, ale takes ill. He lingers for some time, but eventually he succumbs to his age and infirmity. Ale, the berserk. The warrior, the poet, enemy and friend of kings, dies the most prosaic death imaginable, at home, in his bed, quietly, of old age. It's one last unexpected moment for a story that's been full of them. Mm. We don't even get a description of the death. Remember mm-hmm. how Scott Ligrim died on the edge of his bed, still in his muddy riding clothes? Sure, yeah. Even Arambjorn, who doesn't get much of a send-off at all, we're, we're told he died in battle by his lord's side. Well, and and he got the poem from Ale as a sort of preemptive eulogy. Yeah, true. Ale's just allowed to slip away. Mm-hmm. Although we do get some details about his funeral. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and some things that happened afterward. Mm-hmm. Part 52. Ale's Bones. This is an ominous title. Well. (laughs) Well, let's deal with the funeral first. So remember that Ale's a bit of a dandy when it comes to fine clothes and armor. He likes his gold trim. Absolutely. Well, Grimm, his his son-in-law, has Ale dressed in his best clothes. And when he's buried, he's buried along with his weapons and clothes. Right. So Ale's a clothes horse even in the grave. (laughs) Yes, it, yeah, it reads that way. Ale's buried in a mound at Cheldenes, which is a way southeast of Borgonus. And you'd, you'd think that'd be the end of it, but Ale's body proves to remain slightly restless even after his death. There's, well, a, there's a few to moments. Be, to be clear, you mean literally his body. This isn't a yes. revenant situation. He's oh, not, oh, not exactly. No, 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 no. Uh, yeah, I'm talking about his remains, for, yeah. at least for the moment. Um, we'll get to the other kind later. Uh, Grimm and Thordis convert to Christianity some years after Ale's death. Mm-hmm. And when Grimm has a church built at Mossville, Thordis has her father's remains exhumed and moved to the church. See, not exactly the sort of place you'd expect to find Ale in his final repose. No. Uh, and the author goes out of his way to suggest that Ale's bones were considered something very special. It is said that Thordis had Ale's bones moved to the church. When a cemetery was later dug where the church had been built, human bones were found underneath the altar. They were much larger than normal human bones, and on the basis of old accounts, people are certain they must have belonged to Ale. Hmm. Okay, so we've talked before on the podcast about how you and I are both very interested in disability studies. Yeah, and I I think we've managed to shoehorn that in once or twice along the way here. Well, okay, but if anything, we've been holding ourselves back in this saga because... Ale Saga is probably the most studied saga from a disability studies perspective. Well, uh, we're only a few lines away from the end of the saga at this point, so it's now or never. We got to get it in. 
Oh, it's now. Uh, well, let's go. It makes sense to think about this saga and Ale himself from the disability narrative view, since Ale lives out physical and mental difference to a remarkable degree. Now, because of that, discussions of Ale have anchored previous intersections between saga and disability studies. Mm-hmm. We can begin with Jesse Bayak's argument, and we actually referenced it in the title to this section. Uh, in a set of publications in the mid-1990s, Bayak suggested that Ale's physical description, especially in the later passages of the saga, suggests the progress of Paget's disease. John, you want me to put that article up on the website? Yeah, please. Okay. But yeah, uh, for Bayak... Ail's body shows the progress of Paget's disease, especially in his later life. And so his story might tell us about how people responded to a disordered or a suffering body. Exactly. Bayak's analysis is really interesting, but I want to preface this by saying that whether he's correct or not, I mean, any diagnosis of a medieval literary figure with a specific disease is almost certainly more meaningful for a modern audience than it would have been for a medieval one. Yeah. I think we have to be really conservative in trying to ascribe meaning in the text to the medical status of Ail's body. Yeah, that's something that Bayak himself is fairly careful about in his writing. He clearly states that his diagnosis is, quote, primarily of epidemiological interest. For him, it's interesting to find a medical cause for Ail's physical problems because it might stop people from arguing that the saga is engaging in hyperbole when it describes Ail's late life ailments. Sure. Uh, Now, the meaning of Ail's body and his experience of debility in old age are certainly of importance to the saga author, but not for diagnostic reasons. The condition of Ail's body and mind in the text tell us more about how disability was perceived. Mm -hmm. A diagnosis doesn't explain Ail, in other words. At best, it can give us a way to understand the matrix of cues that other people, and maybe his author, are responding to when they see or imagine Ail. Yes, which is something... I really like about this approach. Yeah. It explains what they're reacting to, but not how they react. All right, exactly. So let's uh, let's look at this. Uh, do you want to do the honors? Yeah. Well, well briefly, Bayok's argument is that Ail's physical appearance and the mm-hmm. signs of his decline through his adulthood and into old age are diagnostic indicators of Paget's disease. As he puts it, what set Ail apart was more than simply a small personal peculiarity. The saga tells us that Ail became deaf, often lost his balance, went blind, suffered from chronically cold feet, endured headaches, and experienced bouts of lethargy. Furthermore, the saga describes unusual disfigurements of his skull and facial features. These symptoms suggest that Ail may have suffered from a syndrome that results from a quickening of normal bone replacement. The disease, first diagnosed by Sir James Paget in 1877, runs in families, and is uncannily similar to Ail's affliction. Excellent. Now, this has been a fairly controversial argument since it was made. Yeah, you're right, it has. And Bayok isn't the first one to push this interpretation of Ail. Back in 1984, Thorder Hodgson and Elizabeth Snorredotter, they actually argued that Paget's disease of the bone should be renamed Ail's disease. Sorry. Sorry, Paget family. (laughs) Right. Now, some readers agree with their and Biox arguments, and others don't see Ail's condition as adding up the way that they do. And others resist the idea that diagnosing a literary figure has any analytic value. Now, there's at least one counter-argument that agrees with Hardison, Snarredotter, and Biox on the particulars of Ail's condition, but comes to a different diagnostic conclusion. 
Peter Stride argued a few years ago that Ailes' symptoms might actually be a gen- different genetic condition called Van Buchem disease, which has many of the same characteristics as Paget's disease, including sensory loss due to bone hyperdevelopment. Well, this is a complicated question to wade into. No, certainly it is. Uh, it's an interesting mental exercise to consider whether Ailes' traits and his evolving physical condition are reliable as descriptions of a lived experience. Ail may or may not be the origin of the characteristics being described, but is our author attempting to accurately depict a person living through the advanced stage of a debilitating chronic disease? And if so, how deeply is that featured in the rest of the saga? You sound like you're angling towards something. Sort of. I'm agnostic on the question of diagnosing Ail. I don't think it solves the text. And a modern medical diagnosis has to be treated as a kind of reader response. It might tell us something about how we react to the text, but I'm doubtful it can tell us much about the thinking of the author or the contemporary audience or the depicted figure. I think we need to look at how the text treats Ailes' body and life instead of how it freights meaning to us. But if we take Bayak and Stride's arguments and run with them, we do find some interesting things in this saga. So, for example, both Paget's and Van Buchem disease list the loss of sensory function as characteristic of the disease's development, yeah? Yeah, well, you know, I I don't have my DSM-5 on me right now, but yeah, that, that sounds right. <laughs> sure. Okay, so I'm going to take you back to Ail's suicide attempt. Yeah, that's after his sons Bothvar and uh, Gunnar have both died, right? Right. Now, Ail's locked himself in his bedroom and is trying to starve himself. Mm-hmm. Thorgerd, his daughter, enters the room and gets him to first eat dulse, which is a dried seaweed. Yes. And then a drink from a horn, which he thinks is filled with water, but which is actually milk. Mm-hmm. Ale takes a big swig out of the horn, but doesn't seem to realize anything's wrong until Thorgerd says, well, we've been tricked. This isn't water, it's milk. Now that suggests to me that Ale can't taste or smell the milk. Mm. Right? No one's written about this as far as I know, but there it is. So that's really interesting. Because, you know, my, my first impulse when reading this section is to say that it's just simple exposition, right? Uh-huh. The author has to make sure that his audience understands what's happening here. Ale's been tricked into drinking milk, which will provide much-needed nourishment to a man who's been starving himself. Sure. Now, at the same time, the author seems to put a great deal of effort into describing Ale's ailments as an old man. So, yeah, John, you might be onto something. That's really interesting. Hey, you think there's some potential here? Yeah, yeah, of course. But you are jumping into the scholarly tradition that we've just been talking about of looking for a medical explanation of Ailes' physical impairments. Yeah, no, I, I prefaced by saying I was doing that, you know. Yeah, and, and there's always <laughs> potential in something like that. I, I agree. At the same time, we should reiterate that not everyone is a fan of the idea of diagnosing Ailes through his saga. Sure. Now, I'm not terribly invested in that line of thinking myself, but I see its potential. Mm-hmm. And it has to be said that the saga really does sort of invite this line of inquiry. After Ail's death and exhumation, those mm-hmm. descriptions mm-hmm. of his bones and his scallop-ridged skull, those are at least evidence that the author means us to read Ail right. as physically different from other people. Yeah, right. Right. It's it's fair play to consider how that evidence is written into the text and, and on to Ail's body and remains. Mm-hmm. But we have to be really careful with the text's clues. Uh, so, for example, even the saga's author admits the bones are not known to be Ail's. Right. What he says is, on the basis of old accounts, people are certain they must have belonged to Ail. Right. They're not definitely Ail's bones. They just match up with and reinforce an oral history. Right. And that oral history is of a man whose life has long since passed into memory and legend. 
Biox diagnosis of Ale is potentially a value, but it can really only tell us about the version of him that would resonate meaningfully with a saga audience mm-hmm. and with their allegorical or mythomedical ideas about difference. Mythomedical. I am sticking with it. Mm-hmm. Now, something else we've been talking about all along is how Ale's physical difference was inextricable from the meaning of Ale's family tree. Right. Now, that's something we can look at for how a saga audience might find meaning in how Ale looks and how he ages. We yes. began the saga with Ale's ancestors. Remember, on his mother's side, Ale's great-grandfather, Kauri of Beryl, was a Viking who is also a berserk, and one of his mm-hmm. children was Ail's great uncle, Over Knufa, or Over Hump. Right, and the whole history of berserks as a literary convention is, uh, we don't have time for it now, but it's complicated. We, no, we don't. Uh, so on his father's side, Ail's grandfather, Ulf Bjalvason, who is known as Kveldolf, or Nightwolf, mm-hmm. and as the name suggests, he's rumored to be a shapeshifter. Right, and for that matter, Kveldolf is in turn the son of Bjalfi the Herser and Halbera, the sister of Halbjorn Half-Troll. And Ail's father, remember, was actually named Grimm. He's called yes. Skatlagrim, Skullgrim, or Baldgrim, due to his unusual appearance. And uh-huh. He's bald, of course. Um, but he also has berserk tendencies and fantastical monstrous abilities. Yes, and all of this, all of this is told in bits and pieces across the saga. Mm-hmm. But it's all vital to understanding why Ale is treated as vaguely monstrous in his saga, and why an atypical skeleton would be almost irresistibly identified with him. Ale's family is a genetic melting pot of marked figures, whose difference threatened to disable them socially. Even the berserk ones. Yeah. Cowrie and his descendants are remarkable for their social and reproductive success. Berserkers in general were treated as dangerous and abnormal individuals. We see that in a lot of sagas. Right. I mean, even the other berserks in this saga fall into that category. Think of someone like Yolt the Pale. Right? Uh, Lois Bragg says, The saga world berserker is constructed as a congenitally monstrous thug, an idiot, and a madman all rolled into one outsized goon. And when you look at the general characterization of berserks across the sagas, you can kind of see the point she's making. Yeah. And shapeshifters are also more likely to cause consternation than pride in a family. Yes. And then there's the indirect lineage to Olvir Hump and Halbjorn Haftroll. Right. There's a remarkable concentration of physical markers of difference in Ail's family line. How convenient. Uh, and the physical description of Ail throughout his life make it clear he's not just coming into physical difference late in life. Yeah. And I've got a few of those here. As oh, a good. child, he was described as very ugly like his father. Right. He was described as twice the size of other boys his age, talkative and difficult. And later on, his adult face has a wide forehead, bushy brows, and a nose that was squat and extremely broad. His chin and entire jaw were exceptionally wide. Mm-hmm. And with his thick neck and broad shoulders, he stood out from other men. He's different at all times. Yes. And all throughout this saga, we understand that Ail is what Bayak calls the dark figure. Uh, Antisocial, unmannered, physically off-putting, but also a tenacious survivor, and in Ail's case, also an emotionally volatile poet. There's a lot to unpack here. But we we should stick to the physical stuff for now. Uh, Well, the point is that Ail is different from his fellow man in multiple ways. The physical markers of difference are just one part of him, and it's probably not fruitful to try to reduce him to a single interpretive solution. 
He is a volatile berserk, an emotional poet, a misshapen and trollish figure with disconcerting features. He's a dandy. He's a troublemaker. He's a loving family man. His complexity makes him both non-normative and impossible to fit into regular categories of the non-normative. In other words, Ailes' characterization resists an easy binary of normal or able and the opposite. So in other words, there are times when Ailes' difference from others is that he's more competent, more accomplished, or better suited to a task, like composing the poem for his sons, or seeking King Hawkins' taxes from evil earls, or leading Mm -hmm. Athelstan's army to victory at Brunenburg. Right. And then there are times when Ale is more emotionally than physically distinct from other men. Uh, Armin Jakobsen writes very well about that aspect of Ale's character. Uh, My point is that difference, impairment, and disability are categories with some overlap in any meaningful critical model. And Ale seems to live in those areas of overlap. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But that, that does collapse when he gets older, doesn't it? The saga doesn't really offer any complexity to the suffering Ale has to endure as an elderly invalid. No, but this is a literary figure, and I think we can take his old age on board with an overall view of his character. Uh, That gets into a whole other thing about literature that fascinates me, which is the fourth dimension of character arc. Uh, That's for another time. Uh, So thinking about him sort of through time as well as as a character. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we look at his old age in isolation, we get a a moving depiction of advancing incapacity in Ailes' older uh, years. His sight and hearing both fail, his legs stiffen, his movements grow hesitant, his body becomes increasingly frail. He endures insults from the servants that are explicitly linked to the diminishing of Ale's strength and prowess. We have that cook expressing mock surprise that for a man who had been as great as Ale to lie around under other people's feet and stop them going about their work. That's essentially an accusation that Ale has become... A kind of a coal biter, a man who lies about near the fire and does no work. Yes. Typically reserved for young people in the sagas. That usually carried with it a corresponding slight against the manhood of the person being accused, which makes sense when Ale's lament against old age may include a complaint against his middle leg not being as firm as it once was. Well, I mean, that's another aspect that we could do a deep dive into. Uh, the final chapters of this saga treat old age as an impairment to masculinity specifically. Yes. And so the senescent or aging male body becomes associated with femininity. Mm-hmm. Right? His legs are old widows. His penis is limp and damp. He spends his time by the fire in the realm of women at work. Yeah, and that's a good point. There are pretty clear cultural markers at work there. Uh, it also reminds me of Carol Clover's argument for a one-sex system of gender in the Viking Age. Yes, exactly. Yeah, achievement and capability are part of a successful gender identity, which is associated with but not the same as male identity, and we see that all over Mm -hmm. the sagas. It makes sense that in that context, a decline in capability would take on some of the character of a decline in gender association. Right. I have to do a long read through the sagas, but I'm pretty sure that the affliction of old age, to use Ailes' term, that that affliction is commonly paired with a masculatory language. Yeah, and certainly more than it's paired with language defeminizing women. Of course. No, yeah. John, what about Ingemund the Old from Vatensdala Saga? How is he mm-hmm. characterized in his older age? Because I honestly don't remember. Right. No, he's, he's treated as a kind of elder statesman, right? That he's, uh, while he becomes older and slower, uh, he's still a capable man and one who 
uh, works actively to seek peace in his region. So he, he's more of a uh, Hrothgar, right? He, he's, he may be physically in some weak, ways, yes. but he's wise and capable of leading up to his death. Right, that he's made that seamless transition into uh, being a man of high moral and ethical character and that that kind of makes up for his lack of physical ability. It's unfortunate that Ale doesn't have that kind of mentality that he can he can lead right. us. He's just so self-obsessed that all he's got right. is his well, physical prowess. Well, and as we said, well, which might make him more of a Beowulf. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's, that's fair. All right. Uh, is there anything else we need to talk about with this? Uh, well, I want to circle back to a piece of evidence that the saga provided about Ale's bones. Okay. Uh, you hinted about it before. Uh when the bones under the altar were found, the assumption that they were ales was made on the basis of their size and on the strangely shaped skull. Right? You talked about the scalloped skull. Yeah. But that's not really proof. So the priest who found the bones, his name was Skofty Thorarinson. Skofty was of a scientific mind, and so he hit the skull with an axe. So, I mean, it's not the most respectful way to treat the dead, is it? I mean, you find a... It's science, Andy. You can't make a science omelet without breaking a few heads. With an axe? I mean, I- Well, it's a small axe. It's a, it's a science axe. And the, I'm sorry. And you said skull. a science axe? Is that, so it's different from yes. a business axe that we talked about in the yes. previous episode. There's, there's serious work afoot. Fetch my science axe. <laughs> That's the <laughs> worst catchphrase of all time there. Fetch my science well, axe. Well, you may have a humanities truncheon. Maybe. Uh, anyway, the point is that Skofty is curious about the thickness and strength of this skull. And what he learns is that the skull is pretty damn strong. His science axe leaves a white mark on the bone, but the skull doesn't break or even crack. And what did the research-minded Skofty Thorarnson learn from the experiment, exactly? Well, his considered opinion was that the skull was hard. <laughs> That's a brilliant deduction. <laughs> I smash the saga it, it no break. It hard. Yeah. <laughs> the the saga says, well, it goes to show that such a skull would not have been easy for weak men to damage when it was covered with skin and hair. Well, <laughs> this guy was a science machine. <laughs> because skin and well, hair are is, basically armor, in my opinion. Right, right. Uh, the thing is, the skull's strength is taken as implicitly supporting the identification of the bones as ales. In fact, before the uh, experiment... The uh-huh. author is careful to say that people thought the bones must be ales, but once the skull resists an axe blow, they're definitely his. The next line is, ales bones were buried by the edge of the churchyard at Mossville. So this becomes a circular argument. Ale mm-hmm. was abnormally large and disfigured, and the evidence for that is partly that his bones are large and disfigured. But Mm -hmm. we only know the bones are his because we already believe those are the kind of bones that Ale would have. Exactly. So we're left with a bit of a mystery. Ale's physical presence is established early and repeatedly, but the saga's characterization is based on 13th century beliefs about Ale. Mm -hmm. And that characterization is shaped in part by the legends about Ale's bones that are told long after he's dead. All right. Now, I don't think this is a mystery we can necessarily solve tonight, though, so... Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. You don't get to wrap up just yet. There's still one more chapter to go. We were so close, everyone. I'm sorry. Part 53. What lives on? This, uh, This last bit gets us back into familiar saga territory, finally. 
It's a look ahead to Ail's descendants and their importance to Iceland. Yeah, although in this case, we get a few broad strokes about the bloodline in general. Then the author focuses pretty exclusively on Thorsten's part of the descendant game. All right. So Thorsten gets a short paragraph, which boils down Mm -hmm. to he converted to Christianity and he was a devout and well-organized person who lived to an <laughs> devout and he was very well organized. You should see his budget. <laughs> he lived to an old age and was buried in a churchyard at Borg. Yeah, I, I got to say well organized is not the most impressive word to have on your tombstone. <laughs> no, I mean, I, and I don't think you have to worry. I've I've seen Oh, what thank you. you. <laughs> what 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 do you want on your tombstone? That's ah, not something I need to worry about. I'm not going to have a headstone, but uh I feel like you will. So what do you want? Uh I want to be continued. Uh, I'm an optimist. <laughs> that, that's surprisingly brief for you. I mean, I would think after all all the things that we, we've done this podcast, you'd want, you know, multiple. Well, you know, they charge by the word, Andy. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you are a professor. So, OK. So, yeah, what we learn about Thorstein isn't all that exciting, especially since we know from Gunnlaug Saga that Thorstein is a well-respected and impressive man of his generation. But we do learn some important things. Yeah, Christianity, for one thing. Yes. Now, Thorstein is in charge of Borg when the conversion to Christianity happens, and he's the one to have a church built on the family lands. Mm -hmm. The description of him as devout is probably a bit of 13th century editorializing, but when we combine that with the information that Grimm and Thordis and Mossfeld convert as well, it's clear that the emphasis is deliberate. It's also kind of a reminder that Ale is one of the last of a dying age. Mm Mm-hmm. He's a 10th century man who lived the sort of life that gets celebrated in sagas about that period. And I think we said when we talked about Gretter that the sagas do drive home that point. Yeah. That the kind of people sagas celebrate and the kind of men who succeeded in the Icelandic system weren't always the same men. I was thinking the same thing and not just because I'm reading Gretter's saga with my class right now. Oh, right. You know, Ale gets away with it mostly. But yes, mm-hmm. and, and the fact that the end of Ale's story is the conversion of Iceland, Borg, and his own children to Christianity, underlines the changes that were coming. Even Ale's bones were moved into the church at Mosfell by his stepdaughter, probably against his will. Uh, and that conversion work has a long legacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the current church on the spot, uh, Borgerkirke, uh, was built in the 19th century, but there's been a church at Borgerness continuously ever since Thorsten built one there after the conversion. Which is over a thousand years. That's impressive. It really is. We're Americans. And keeping anything going for a thousand years impresses us. Yeah. We also learned a bit about two of Thorstein's sons. Of Thorstein's sons, Thorger was the strongest, but Skuli was the greatest. I am the greatest. No, not like that. It's not bragging if someone else says it for you. Oh, okay. Yeah. Skuli is the next generation to live at Borg, and like his grandpa Ale, he spends a lot of time away from the farm on raids. Yeah, no, he's, he's a bona fide Viking. He really is at the end of the Viking Age. And Skuli fights in seven major battles in his years as a Viking, and generally he seems to lead a successful life. Yeah, he's also carrying on Ale's tradition in another way. Uh, Skuli continues to mix in Norwegian royal politics. And when you say he's carrying on Ale's tradition... Well, he's still fighting against the Norwegian there kings. There you go. According to several sources, including Ale's saga, Skuli Thorstensen was one of the picked champions of Jarl Erik Harkonnesen, an enemy of King Olaf Tryggvason. Now, we talked about Olaf Tryggvason a number of times on the podcast. 
For folks who might not remember him, this is the Norwegian king who pushed to convert Northern Europe to Christianity in the late 10th century. Yeah, if you go back and listen to our saga briefs on the conversion of Iceland, uh, Olaf is the king who was doing things like holding Icelanders hostage and threatening economic embargoes of the island if the Icelanders refused to convert. Conversion with the gentle hand of King Olaf. Yes. Now, he's generally known for not taking no for an answer when it came to conversion. This is the same guy who sent Halford the troublesome poet to blind a man for refusing to convert. And oh, in other yes. stories, he did things like force feed poisonous snakes or molten lead to those who declined to be converted. Oof, yeah, that's, that's grim. And this is the guy Skuli decided to stand against? Well, you know, like we said, it's kind of the family business. Uh, <laughs> well, Skuli is it... You know, I mean, Skuli is in Jarl Eric's ship, which is called the Iron Ram at the Battle of Svolder. And according to the saga of Olaf Tryggvason, Skuli actually boarded Olaf's ship during the battle. Mm. He had the king in his sights, but the the ship was so choked with bodies that Skuli's footing wasn't secure. And by the time he'd cleared a space to stand in, Olaf was gone. So Skuli was a witness, or at least a near witness, to the moment when Olaf jumped overboard from his ship and drowned himself to avoid being captured. John, that that's impressive. I mean, yes, and uh, Skuli's also a poet like Grandpa Ale. Several fragments of poetry of Skuli survive, and they're preserved in Snorri Sturluson's Skaldskapermal. They date from late in Skuli's life, and mostly they're accounts of battles Skuli fought in back when he was a young man. Uh, Snorri uses the fragments as illustrations of good poetic imagery. I lie awake early and late with sorrow since things looked promising to the shrill crying bird's expanse. The poet listens now to better tidings. Hvittinglok would not have found me last in a hundred men's company where I provided sore wounds for the early flying eagle. Now, that's the kind of secret language style poetry that <laughs> is obscure enough to have made Ale proud. Well, yeah. Now, it's, it's also a reminder that both poets are most likely being recorded and preserved by the same man. Well, briefly, I mean, yeah, it's a good point. Although I'm still hearing most likely in there. Uh, <laughs> okay, briefly, Scully's poems here mean something like, I'm sleepless because of the times when I spilled blood for shrill crying ravens although now I hear pleasanter sounds. A woman would not have found me hiding in the back of the company when men were being slaughtered for the Feast of Eagles. Mm -hmm. That's a poem Gretcher could get behind. Yep. Pretty standard boasting poem, of course, except for the sleepless part at the beginning. Yeah, I have to say, it's a really interesting addition. Um, if we're looking for a sign that Schooley's poetry has some of the same depth as his ancestors, I think we find it there. That reference to being unable to sleep because the sounds of the battlefield still ring in his ears. It might be a posture, but whether it is or not, it intrigues me as a possible reference to the trauma of battle affecting a warrior many years after the fighting is done. Yeah, yeah. These really are fragments, though. I mean, you're having yeah. to stitch together two different pieces of poetry to get a coherent story out of them. Yeah, sure. But there's enough in Snorri's writing and elsewhere that we get at least some kind of picture of Schooley's career. Yeah, and, and Thorger and Skuli are just the tip of the iceberg. The saga says, A great family is descended from Thorsten, and the family includes many important men and poets. So this last bit of the saga looks ahead, past Thorsten's life, to the later generations of Ael's family. Yeah, this is the Murar clan. Right, and that's a word that I have trouble saying, actually. Murar 
See, that's not a problem for is me. Is it really? The yeah. Murar clan is a collection of families, and all the descendants of Scutlegrim are included. The saga tells us, For a long time it was a family trait to be strong and warlike, and some members possessed great wisdom. It was a family of contrasts. Some of the best-looking people ever known in Iceland belonged to it, such as Thorstein Eilson, Kjartan Olofsson, and Thorstein's daughter Helga the Fair. Helga the Fair, John. Ah, mm. Helga the Fair. But most members of the clan were exceptionally ugly. Right, so that's the duality of this family being underlined one last time. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember, in this family, people are either outgoing, popular, attractive, and courtly, or else they're antisocial, monstrous, and difficult with a side of berserker. So, for example, Ail's grandfather, Kveldulf, was contrasted with his grandmother, Salbjörg. Mm-hmm. And his father, Skatligrim, had a handsome brother, Thorolf, just like Ail. Right, and you can expand on that dichotomy throughout the family. Salbjörg had her berserker father. Uh, Kveldulf had a half-troll uncle. But they... Both also had other relatives and extended family who fit either the popular extrovert or misanthropic introvert stereotypes of the family. Yeah. And so this is part of why Ale and Thorolf are so interesting as a, a mix of the two types of the Murar men. Yeah. Ale has all the skills of a court poet, except for the ability to ingratiate himself to powerful men. Yeah. But he's physically and emotionally closer to the misanthropic side of the family. And, and Thorolf's a walking popularity contest. Well, he's handsome. He's accomplished. He makes friends easily. He's a great yeah, guy. He, yeah, he's a prom king in Viking boots. <laughs> uh, but he he lacks the verbal and technical skills of some of his relatives, several of whom remember find positions as poets. Yeah, uh, and he also at one point unleashes what looks very much like a berserk rage at Brunenburg. So we say he lacks technical skills. Are you talking about something like Scott Legrim's skill as a blacksmith? What do you mean? Exactly, yes. Uh, both Ale and Thorolf are effective warriors and strong personalities, mm-hmm. but in very different ways. Uh, and Ale in that way takes after his father in a way that Thorolf doesn't. Really, Ale and Thorolf are in some ways the fullest manifestation of the Murar clan's contradictions, but only by mixing the two profiles of the family in kind of unexpected ways. I think you're absolutely right. And we, we hinted at that many episodes ago when we were talking yeah. about Thorolf and Ail's personalities and how they're different from their previous generation. But uh, yes. All right. I, I think, John, we need to wrap this story up. Uh-huh. The reason it's so tempting to keep going and to keep drawing inferences about the life and experience of Ail is partly that he is so completely conceived as a physical and psychological presence. Very impressive. But there's also the fact that he has such a solid claim to historical validity. Well, he's attested in a number of other texts. And the poems attributed to him were floating around for at least a couple of centuries before the saga was written. They may even date from the 10th century when the historical Ale was active. And when you combine that with the way Ale is presented and treated in his saga and in other sources, it's clear that whatever his historical reality... Icelanders in the 13th century thought of him as historical. Absolutely. And I, I love that aspect of this saga and the construction of the saga around the poems. Mm. Even if we put the historical question to one side, outside of this saga, Eil continued to be an important figure in the Icelandic imagination and in literature. For starters, as we've been saying, he was regarded as an important poet of the settlement age. His poetry was known. 
His poetry was read and quoted before and after this saga was written. Quite right, yeah. And as an ancestor of other important figures, Ale Scotley Grimson loomed large. The Murar clan was descended from him. And he even turns up as an ancestor figure in the dreams of people in the 13th century. He's a big deal. Right. Now, at that point, you're talking about the Samtima Sogar, mm-hmm. the, uh, the contemporary sagas. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I called up my favorite example of Ale putting in a cameo in Strelunga Saga. All right. Uh, a man named Ale, coincidentally, who's a member of Snorri Sturluson's household, has a dream right around the same time that Snorri is buying a farm at Reykjavik and preparing to move away from Ail's family's ancestral home at Borg. In the dream, <laughs> Ail Scotla Grimson appears to the current Ail. Does our kinsman Snorri mean to move away from here? In that he does ill, for men had little sway over the doings of the Murar clan in our prosperous days. He needn't look down his nose at this place. And the saga says, Ale then spoke a verse. Well, of course he did. That's that's kind of what he does. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can't let a thing like death stop you. That man would rather not make a sword strike. His blood is snow white in my sight. I lived in a time of struggle. Wielding a sharp sword bought me this land. That's good stuff. His yep. blood is snow white. That's a that's a nice way of accusing someone of cowardice. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a whole thing I want to go into when we have time, but probably not during the podcast. Uh, that idea of associating the color white with cowardice is interesting to mm. me. Uh, I think we can probably link that back to the red and white saints in Catholic tradition, where the saints who didn't bleed for their beliefs are the white saints. But uh, the tradition goes back further than that. Hang on, this. Does this have anything more to do with Ale Saga? I not per se. Well, then let's uh, let's uh, save it for later. Fine, you spoil sport. Uh, and by later, I'm I mean never. cracking another beer after we finish recording because I do want to cover this. Uh, the point here then is uh, that Ale is showing up in this dream, and that links Snorri Sturluson's own life back to Ale's. It also contraposes the Sterling Age of the 13th century with its morally compromised leaders, its collapsing legal and social structure, its slow, self-inflicted capitulation to foreign rule. All of that is dismissed by one of the most famous voices of the age of Iceland's nostalgic greatness. An age when problems were simpler and could be resolved by men killing one another like civilized people. Right. And now Ail's showing up and giving a manly sniff as he dismisses an entire century. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's, a, it's a celebration of the Icelandic past in the same way the sagas themselves are. Remember, Ail's a protagonist who's killed children, Shh. torn an enemy's throat out with his teeth, and punched servants to death. Well, you know. Right. I mean, but the point is none of that is hidden or excused. But it's part of a story in which Ail's personality and decisions are largely celebrated. That's probably a good spot to end this thing. I mean, I guess it has to end somewhere. I mean, it seems appropriate to Ail Saga for it to end with a, a bit of a whimper and some references to punching <laughs> servants to death. <laughs> uh, so what else do we have today, Andy? Have you had a chance to sift through the listener rune sack? <laughs> Indeed I have. The listener rune sack. Well, John... 
it looks like we've we've got to start out with a quick correction, which I don't think we've ever done. We a correction? No, 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 no. If no, if we're gonna make a correction, that means we got something wrong, and I don't see how that's possible. Uh, you should listen to our old our old episodes. <laughs> uh, frankly, I'm shocked that anyone takes anything that we say seriously. Wow. Uh, but yes, we we do need you know, to make a correction. We are paid academics. <laughs> You know, we do this in our spare time, people. I didn't say well paid. Sometimes we rush. Anyway, remember when Ale threw up in the face of Armald Beard back in episode 29L? <laughs> do you remember that? Do I remember it? I've had kids homesick from school for the last few days, Andy. I can still smell it. What did we screw up there? <laughs> well, in our summary of Ale's interactions with Armald Beard, I think we were a little too reliant on our English translation when we discussed the food Armand served Ale. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, we said that Ale was upset because Armand pretended to only have curds available for his guests. That's right. And those half-digested curds ended up in Armand's bushy beard. Indeed they did. And I believe at that moment they were very curd-like. Um, anyway, so quite a few listeners took issue with this. For example... Jon Powell said, I feel compelled to leap to the defense of the skur, the curds, which is almost a national dish here in Iceland, and you described as a salty peasant food. <laughs> it is neither. Uh-huh. Skur was sour, as all dairy products at that time were, and it was not simply for peasants, but a, it's a food staple, along with cheese, butter, meat, and fish. That means it was consumed by all, usually on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, Paul and the others who jumped to the defense of skur are right, uh, at least from the modern understanding of the terms involved. Uh, the Old Norse does say skur, but Scudder's choice of curds is based on Klisby Vigvesen and other Old Norse dictionaries, which define the term skur as curdled milk or curds that are stored up for food. Mm-hmm. Now, if I had to guess, I'd say that Scudder is also thinking that English-speaking audiences wouldn't be familiar with skur. So, curds was a translation that made sense. Yes, and while skur is technically a curd dish, we tend to think of curds as small, moist pieces of cheese that are left over after squeezing the whey out of curdled milk. Mm. Skur is smoother, almost yogurt-like in texture once you buy it, right? Right, right. You know, I, I've got a great deal of experience with curds because my wife is from Wisconsin where uh, fried curds are a thing. Yeah, and uh, the, the, what is, is the squeaky, squeaky oh curds Oh, my or something God, it's like awful. That. The squeaking Squeak noise they make when you chew them. They're yeah, I, I, don't, I don't get it. Uh, but, I mean, there are people who really love them, uh, including mm-hmm. my wife. Uh, so, all right, so skur is made from skimmed milk and active cultures that ferment the milk and help convert the lactose into lactic acid. Once you let those cultures do their thing and then squeeze out the whey, you're left with these protein-rich curds with a texture similar to Greek yogurt. Yeah, so you said curds there. Curds is yeah. technically right. This is a, a cheese. Skur is a soft yogurt-like cheese made from curds. They're curds. Yeah, it's funny. I don't really think of them as cheese. I think of it as cheese, but it, it is, isn't it? I don't think most people think of skewer as uh, right. cheese, especially when you buy it in the store, right? Right, right. Uh, but it's the cheese. Problem, the problem is our modern sense of the word curd, right? Uh, that we have a different sense of what it looks, feels, and tastes like 
Yeah. And it's probably being indicated by the saga. Right. And to the modern Icelandic audience, perhaps to those who have been to Iceland or maybe go to their store and enjoy a bit of Sikis, oh, the yeah. term skur in the original Icelandic does make a lot of sense. But for those not familiar with skur, which is going to be most people who pick up a copy of Scudder's translation, the word has little meaning. Skur, right? What is it? I, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's fair. But, but why say curds if yogurt is a better approximation of what is being consumed? I know they're not well, the same thing, but... Right. I mean, I, I realize we're getting into a bit of a loop here, but as you know, skur isn't yogurt. It's technically curds. Right. So we're back at the start. Right. Who's on first? That's right. And and what's on second, John? Right. Skur is on third. <laughs> uh, but the the general point made by Jan Paul in the Runesack is that we ran with the word curds in our discussion... And misrepresented the glorious treat that is Icelandic skur, of which I have several small tubs in my fridge at the moment. And for mm-hmm. that, we apologize. Right. John and I are both big fans of skur. When we are in Iceland, skur's for lunch. <laughs> and here at home, well, I prefer Siggy's over any other yogurt products in the dairy section. It's great stuff. You sound deeply insincere right now, which is funny because I know you actually do eat this stuff. Do I sound insincere? I mean, <laughs> you it might do be a little bit because. Well, hold on, let me try this again. Here at home, I prefer Siggy's over any other yogurt products in the dairy. <laughs> now you're section. doing a commercial. <laughs> it's great stuff. Probably best if you just uh, let it go. <laughs> well, all right. Are, are I you... think the incredible thing to note is that traditional Icelandic skewer hasn't changed a great deal in over a thousand years. No, it hasn't. Uh, so if you want to tap into your inner Viking, uh, start eating skur. <laughs> I agree. Um, all right. You ready for another question? No, I want to get some skur. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. Well, what do you got? What's next? All right. So here's another one from uh, Maximilian French who wrote to us at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com, which is our email address, coincidentally. It is. That's he says, probably why he wrote to us there. <laughs> that's what I was thinking. <laughs> he says... I have a question for the rune sack about something from episode 29M, although it applies to other sagas as well. So, is it not odd that the Irish slaves have Norse names, even if their names were made uh, up by the possibly infamous saga author, which I think uh-huh. is a great touch there. Well done, <laughs> Maximilian. Um, wouldn't he and his audience find this strange? I mean, I could see how Kori and Skori might sound foreign, at least, and Svart is a common name for slaves in the sagas, but I don't think there are that many Irishmen who call themselves Thormod. (laughs) What are your thoughts? Okay, this is a good question, and I think the simplest way to answer is to recall our original conversation on that episode. Uh, Andy, you're a fan of this kind of story. Do you want to take us through it real quick? Uh, sure, yes. Uh, this is the Irish slaves who got free and ran amok. That's the ones. Amok is a great word. They ran amok. So that story was just that these Irish slaves, led by men named Cory, Scory, Thormod, and Svart, burned Thord Lambason's farmhouse with Thord and a bunch of men inside. Mm-hmm. They were then hunted down and killed one by one by Thord's son, Lambi Thordison. And the locals named several locations after the slave that was killed in each spot. Right. Uh, Cory is killed at Coroness. Scory at Scory Island. Uh, Thormod gets a rock named after him. Yes. So uh, what's going on here is toponymy. The saga author is giving us a story to explain a bunch of local place names. So that's right. important. Yeah. This is almost certainly being retconned. I mean, there's a reason Coroness is called Coroness. But whether it actually refers to a long dead escaped slave, I mean, We'll just call it an open question. Yeah. 
But there's another angle here. Uh, which is? Well, Irish names might well have been difficult for Norsemen to pronounce. Uh, not just Norsemen. We, well, right. Uh, for Scandinavians in general. Not just Scandinavians. Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> yes, indeed. My my Irish blood forbids me from admitting your point. Mm. Uh, I think we explained at one point in Njal's saga that Njal's name is actually derived from the Irish Nile or Neil. Uh, and there's a pretty long tradition as well of, of slave-owning people all over the world who either misname or rename their servants. So it's possible that a fair number of Irish slaves in Scandinavian households would have ended up with descriptor names like Svart or replacement names like Thormod. Or Toby. Or mispronounced names, uh, right? So they've taken an Irish name and just mispronounced it. It's not that hard to imagine that a name like Cory might well be twisted from a Celtic name like uh, Kiri or Kari. Hell, I mean, while we're on the subject, Cory might well be the Gaelic name Cory, which means round hill and would therefore be a perfectly reasonable association with a promontory, which is what Coriness refers to. Mm, a bit on the nose, in my opinion. I mean, but, uh, just a bit, but, you know, we're talking about place names here. You want to get as on the nose as you can. Yeah, but it, 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 that brings us right back to the idea of toponymics. Hey, look, if I can't Mobius loop my way through a straightforward question, I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> uh, thanks for the question, Maximilian. It's, it's an interesting cultural contact moment to think about. Yeah. Uh, is that all for now? Well, I mean, there are a few more questions, but I think we'll save them for our next saga. Because now, now, John... And now, the end is near. And so we face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. Uh, okay, all right, blue eyes. Uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Well. Uh, by the way, sidebar, uh, that is my parents' wedding song. Is that really? Which explains a great deal that you would you would choose a song called "My Way" for your wedding song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it they speaks must... of a great deal of marital bliss to follow. <laughs> um, so we're going to be back. We're not actually done yet. Uh, right. It's not the final curtain. We'll be back with a judgment episode for Ale's Saga in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Which means, in the meantime, we have time to open the doors to you. We need your help. Yeah, if you've actually managed to listen to all 14 episodes of this, well, this is the 15th episode. True. Yeah. Yeah. So if you've actually managed to listen to all 15 episodes that we've spent on Ale Saga, well, first of all, what's wrong with you? But thank you. Thank you is <laughs> yeah, what I was trying of all, to say. Or a third of all, I suppose. You spent way too long listening to us talk about Ale Saga. Yes, but at this point, we have to decide what to nominate as the best moments, the best figures, the one-liners from this sprawling story. You've got to, we've got to figure out who's worthy of nomination for best bloodshed. Right. Which nicknames need to be explained or celebrated? What was the best bit of writing or poetry in the saga? And who should we be outlawing from Iceland? Who should John and I take as Thingman? Do we really want Ale in our we, Thingman group? We don't even know which one of us is picking a Thingman first, do we? No, we uh, decided over a year ago that yeah. we wanted this one to be a, a surprise. 
And so we're going to be flipping a coin to decide that. Time to start looking for those coins around Mossfell. Yeah, it is. <laughs> now, if you do want to let us know what you think and maybe help us to shape the judgments for Ale Saga, you can find us on all the usual social media outlets. We're on Facebook at Saga Thing Podcast, on Twitter at Saga Thing Pod, and we're on Instagram at Saga Thing Podcast. We've also got the WordPress blog. SagaThingPodcast.wordpress.com. And if you're into this sort of thing, we've got an email address. That's SagaThingPodcast at gmail.com. Now, you can also reach us by leaving a note between the teeth of a skull under your local church altar. We'll, uh, we'll get back to you in about a century or so once our science axes are all warmed up and ready to crack your code. <laughs> I get it. See? All right. We will be back soon when we finally put Ale Saga on trial at The Saga Thing. It's about time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. Particularly in the later passages of the saga suggest the progress of Paget's disease. Pat, sorry, I said Paget's disease. Let's look at the Paget disease evidence. God damn it. Paget disease is really hard to say, man. It's not. Uh, <laughs> it's really not. You say it. Paget's disease. F*** you. <laughs> it's not hard to say. I, I have trouble saying a lot of things. And this is like, for whatever reason, this is one that just really falls apart for me. Right. Exactly. So, all right. So, let's look at the <laughs> Paget's. I can't. The Paget's. Paget's. <laughs> Pagets. And it's hard to say. It's not hard at all. You go to hell. I can't say Paget's disease. I don't know how you hit that T after the G, man. What, what do you Paget's. What Paget? You're, you're fine. It's, you're fine. Paget's. Wow. Uh, I wish I I wish I was like four beers in and I could just blame the beer. A little Paget's. Oh. <laughs>